the fear of change right now, and this is reality, is so much greater than the reality of the change you'll experience. And um, I can say that until I'm blue in the face, but you know, the, rea- the, the, the playing experience will make that go away. I don't think in 2029, if you're playing a ball made in 2026 and your partner's make, playing a ball played in 2029, the two of you will, will know the difference or probably even think about the difference. And we don't want that to be dis- an, an disruptive moment in time. If th- those things transition their way out, and like I said, I, I was in the manufacturing business long enough to think about the people that have probably already started working on new technology. Um, there's going to be golf balls in 2028 that you're going to want to play, even if you're three yards shorter, because they're going to be better golf balls. Welcome back to the Golfer's Journal podcast presented by Titleist, the number one ball in golf. My name's Tom Coyne. Thanks so much for joining us. Very excited to bring you this conversation recorded at USGA headquarters in Liberty Corner, New Jersey, with none other than USGA CEO Mike Wan. As you can imagine, we have a thorough discussion about the new testing standards for the golf ball, a.k.a. the rollback. And since I just noted that this podcast is presented by Titleist for the sake of full transparency, let's waste no time in clearing the air on any perceived conflict of interest there. We love Titleist. We love all our sponsors. They bring a tremendous amount of value to our members and elevate our events and help us bring these stories to you. But it should go without saying that we do not take editorial direction from Titleist or from any of our sponsors. Titleist did not tell us what to ask the USGA or direct our questions here. The questions you're going to hear in this conversation came from our members and from our own curiosity about a significant rule change for a game we are all so passionate about. Personally, I had questions about the philosophical underpinnings of this change, so you'll hear Mike address those here. Uh, a change like this, I mean, it does it does deserve thorough scrutiny, and as you'll hear, Mike Wan, he welcomed that scrutiny. Of course, if you have rollback fatigue, I assure you, we talk about other things as well. Mike is great to listen to, and he gives us insights on leadership and how to make tough decisions when no easy option presents itself. There are a lot of sides to this issue, of course, and in the spirit of open debate and healthy discourse, if you'd like to hear Titleist's position on this new testing standard and see where their perspective might differ from the USGA's, you can go to Titleist.com distance and find an official statement there. And no matter what ball you're playing now or in 2030, you still have to get gifts for those on your holiday list. Don't forget, a lot of distractions in golf right now. You could have forgotten somebody. Uh, and a gift that you can give them that will perhaps be a welcome respite from all the noise out there in golf right now is, of course, a subscription to the Golfer's Journal. Four times a year, whoever gets it, they're going to remember you, remember how awesome you are. And you can even purchase this. I mean, this is a great last minute gift. You can be sitting there on Christmas Day on the couch. I forgot to get someone a gift on your phone. You can order it and be a hero. Uh, it is a great buzzer beater of a gift for sure. So now let's go out to Liberty Corner and to a downstairs spot at USGA's headquarters, a place they call Arnie's Place. It's a very cool little area. It's got Arnold Palmer memorabilia everywhere, golf clubs, photos, a little putting green. And on the day that we visited, CEO Mike Wan was there as well. Mike! <laughs> Mike Wan, thanks so much for joining us on the Golfer's Journal podcast here at USGA headquarters. What a great spot to be. So really appreciate your time during 
a very busy time for any number of reasons. Um, you're coming into your, so 2021, so you're coming up on your second year. Third year. Third, oh, coming sorry. up on three, yeah. The, yeah, coming up on three. Um, just want to first want to thank you for everything that you do for golf and everything the United States Golf Association does for golf. I hope that hasn't been lost in all the conversations you've been having in the last two weeks, that everyone in this building is in service yeah. to the game that we love. Um, and whether there's disagreements on one side or the other about the best way to approach that game or govern that game, yep. you know, that it's all coming from a place of passion and a mutual love of this game. So thank you for that. What's the, been the best part of the job so far? Uh, I guess I didn't, I didn't realize just how broad the, the USGA tentacles were in the game. I mean, I, like any regular golfer, I mean, I was the commissioner of the LPGA, so I worked yeah. with the USGA all the time. And I understood rules, and I understood equipment testing, and I understood a few of the championships. But, um, you know, I, I sort of took handicapping for granted, or, or the fact that we're on the same handicapping system in 130 countries. I mean, it's... Um, I guess it just, you know, didn't register. I, I didn't realize how much the USGA gave both physically and financially uh, to the future of the game. Both, both the, uh, you know, not only the, not only young players coming in, but what it means from golf courses and turf grasses and uh, grant programs to make sure that the game's healthier. So it's a really interesting place. When you come from, so I was a manufacturing side. Right. Then I was at the tour side, and now I'm here. Um, each one of those uh, had a little bit further thought. So when you're at the manufacturing side, you got to make the quarter, right? When you're at the associate side, when you're w working for a tour association, it's really critical that next year's schedule is better than this year's schedule. So you're all about one year out. When you walk into the USGA, you have a lot of conversations about 20, 30, 50 years from now. And... Um, and I've, I've thought about it many times, thank, thank goodness, that the USGA and the RNA are the ones really being able to focus on that and to be able to do that without um, corporate partners that you have to deliver, deliver back to uh, you know, uh, conflicts of your own, you know, tied to different parts of the game. So it's, um, it's a weight, but at the same time, you sort of have the freedom in that weight to... Um, you know, to do what you think is right. So uh, it's funny, I used to talk a pretty good game as commissioner of the LPJ about the future of the game. But if I was being honest with you, I thought about that every other Friday afternoon and I really mm -hmm. dove in because Monday through Thursday had to be committed to, you know, my members and what we were, where we were going next week and what the issue was in front of us that minute. And so to spend a lot more time now, especially at this age, you know, I'm 58, so uh, I don't know that I could have done this job at 38. I mean, I don't know if I had the patience to really think about the game long term, but at 58, this game's meant so much to me that it's exciting to be in a position to feel like I can make sure future generations inherit a game better than I had. Yeah, and that's really what this, you know, all the discussion about the rollback, the change in the testing is yeah. about sort of a long-range view of golf. It is. Um, when you came in, there were a list of things, I'm sure, that you said, okay, these are things that are on my radar or I want to accomplish. Um, how is that list coming, and uh, what are the big things left on that list? It's always funny. It's funny you say that about a list. I, I always tell people in your first 60 days, write down every big idea that you have, um, and then post it somewhere for your next six years. And people look, it's like, what? And I said, listen, your first 60 days, you're clueless enough to dream big without all the um, Kool-Aid of why we don't do it that way. Or we looked at that 10 years ago, and it doesn't work. Um, and so if you write those things down, you keep coming back to them. I, I always walk in, I remember walking into the, to the LPJ and a, a board member said to me, do you know what you're going to do? And I said, I have 12 things. And then I saw him at a board meeting like, like 12, uh, 12 weeks later. And they said, how are you doing on your 12 things? I said, half of them are changed. I mean, you know, because you get <laughs> yeah. in and you face reality. So, you know, to me, um, 
uh, to me, you know, I walked in here with a little bit more of an open mind than I probably walked into other jobs before, meaning I knew I had a lot to learn. I'm not a certified rules guy. I didn't grow up uh, doing that. I'm not a PGA Tour player or professional. Um, so uh, I don't, you know, I don't run championships for a living, even though I ran an organization that did that for 12 years. So it was really an opportunity for me to kind of listen first. Um, but the opportunities that we have uh, here for the game, especially now with what's happened since COVID, especially since the explosion of this game, we've talked since I've been in the game 30 years, we've talked about pent up demand. People that want to play more, they just don't have the time. And after a while, you start wondering if that is that real or just mm -hmm. what somebody says on a survey. But 2020 uh, through 2023 has proven to us that that was both real and no longer just a survey. So exciting what's going on in the game. And it's an exciting opportunity to fuel that fire. Absolutely. Uh Looking at the last couple of weeks yeah. and everything that's gone on around talking about the testing change, um, what's that been f like for you personally and what, it's, what, what has it been like for you as the CEO of an organization? Uh, yeah, I mean, personally, uh, personally, you have to always have the caveat on they're only looking at this through their lens and whoever they are, you know, and, and that's okay. You can't... Um, you can't complain about somebody who looks at change through what's it going to mean to them uh, or what's it going to mean today uh, and compare this, you know, this this long term vision against, you know, what, you know, what uh, what one month in 2023 looks like. So um, I guess I've learned that since being here. You know, I mean, uh, we've come out with quite a few proposals and quite a few changes in this whole topic of distance. And uh, from the beginning, I've realized that it's difficult to sit down with somebody in the industry and talk about this game 30 years from now. You can get them there for about four minutes, but pretty quickly in the conversation, they are back to today, tomorrow, March of next year. And, and that's okay. That's not their job. And so uh, I've said this many times. I remember sitting in player meetings at the LPGA saying, I appreciate that comment. That's my job, not yours. Like, I have to think about that. You don't. You have to think about how to make birdie on number one. I'm the one who has to think about. And so I, uh, I accept the responsibility. It's funny, thinking back, when I took this job, the number of people that called me and said, why would you go to the USGA now? Like, you're the one who has to deal with all the distance <laughs> stuff. And if I'm really honest, and this is embarrassing, but that's one of the reasons I wanted to come to the USGA now. Really? Um, because uh, I had, you know, I had strong points of view. And... Um, and I really thought if there's going to be changes made for the long-term part of the game, this game, this game has made my life, right? Like it's my career, it's my passion, it's my it's my pastime, uh, it's where I spend the most time with my family. It's um, so uh, the health of this game when I'm gone is a bigger deal to me than than some other sport that I watch on TV. Yeah, when we talk about game, right? Yeah, and that's one of the things that. Uh, where I've, you know, some people have had concerns or, or I haven't sort of been able to sort of reconcile my understanding of, okay, the game. Is it the pro game? Is it the amateur game? Is it the elite amateur game? Is it the recreational? And it's, it's I suppose, under the USGA's purview, it's all those things. Yeah, including manufacturers, golf yeah. courses, um, you know, universities that are doing research on turf grass. I mean, you really got to, you really have to open your vision of what, uh, what the game is, yeah, and realize that all those people are tied to this game in more than just emotional ways in some cases. So if the game is all these things, one of the things about the the rollback, so to speak, is that it seems that it's addressing an issue that relates to a small sliver of that game, the elite player, the longer, the higher swing speeds, et yeah. cetera. Yeah. Um, so what do you say to folks who would say, okay, this is, 
a change that uh, is really come about because of, say, the 2% um, that's going to affect uh, the 100%. Yeah, I think if you um, if you don't believe the two percent is affecting the other ninety eight percent already, you're sort of not paying attention, right? If you look at golf courses since you know since nineteen uh, hundreds all the way to now, they're consistently getting longer. Um, if you talk to any course designer today, and goodness knows I speak to a lot of them. Um, about what they're being asked when they come into a new project in terms of how big they're being asked to build. Not because they need it today, but because everybody thinks they might be building something significant enough for tomorrow. And so how long does tomorrow have to be? Uh, when you start talking about what size footprint you need to build some of those visions, you know, uh, urban sites become less and less a reality in terms of where people are really, are really located. So, um, uh, what I would say is, you, if you've done the history lesson of our proposals down this path, mm -hmm. we did look at a proposal that was essentially just going to address the 2% and not the 98%. Um, and I, I sat in a chair like this and probably a thousand interviews and told you why I thought that was a really good idea. And it is still a good idea. Um, but it's not a good idea if it's a paper exercise. If at the end of that, it sits in some folder and we really have had no impact on the next 30 to 50 years of the game. And knowing that, um, knowing that a model local rule was an interesting approach, but probably not one that was going to be uh, put into play, uh, then that's really not, you know, that's not a solution. Like I said, that's, uh, I'm not going through all of this to feel like I check some performance box and then uh, in 30 years we're in the same situation we can all see coming, but we just, you know, we just didn't have the guts to do anything about is that what happened to the model local rule? I mean, people. some people are wondering, you know, they see this announcement yeah. and they're thinking like, wait, I thought we were bifurcating. <laughs> you know, um, uh, is, is that why that went away and now we have, have the new proposal? Yeah, I mean, this process is unique, right? It's like nothing I've ever, when you're, in, when you're a commissioner, your job is to go rally all the troops before you go to the podium. And then when you go to the podium, you know, everybody else has sort of heard from mm -hmm. you. In this process, the way we've agreed to do it with the manufacturers and other stakeholders is go to the podium first and say, here's what we're thinking. Now let's spend the next six to nine months walking around and talking to everybody after the fact. So it's always kind of this kind of ba uh, backwards approach from what I kind of learned in Business 101. Um, so when we went to the podium with a model local rule, we thought this was, a, you know, we knew there was going to be some challenges and bifurcation is a, is a lightning rod of a word. Um, but what became really clear was um, this, uh, this link between what the elite people are playing and what the amateurs want to aspire to play uh, was an important part of our game, important part of something that separated. So much so that there was, there was more just, you know, we expect pushback anytime you talk about regulating the game, whether it's a new rule, a new golf piece of equipment, or, you know, or a new, you know, how you're going to set up a golf course. Um, but in this case, I would say that the overwhelming feedback, uh, uh, PGA professionals, um, PGA Tour players, and a pretty significant, uh, uh, not every manufacturer, but a lot of manufacturers, and a pretty significant uh, chunk of uh, consumer groups as well. So that really asked us, you know, if you're going to do something, let's leave it as a one ball for all. Let's leave the equipment as, you know, as the same as you can. Um, and again, if you're going to have these comment periods and you're going to actually ask the industry to comment, you have to actually read them and think about whether or not you're assessing them. And for my, my case, what became pretty clear to me was model local rule for whatever you think about it and whatever you think about bifurcation um, was going to turn into a piece of paper that really never got into play. And uh, that's, not, um, that's not leaving the game better for my kids' kids. Because the, the tour wouldn't Tours. Play it. Tours. Yeah. Weren't interested in it. Um, 
I'm one of, I I'm, wasn't sure what college was going to do. Really? Uh, I wasn't sure what, what elite uh, male competitions across. We even heard from some of our allied golf associations, our partners in the game, about trying to figure out where we implement, where we don't implement, and the challenges of what, where we draw the line. Um, and so we realized, I mean, those were, it wasn't just, I don't want to do it. There were some real challenges, uh, challenges with it. So I remember saying to a group of people who said to me, please don't, don't go down this path. I said, you realize if I, if I'm going to, we're going to make a change here. So if I have to go back to a change across the board, I have to slow down the amount of change. I have to extend the time in which it's going to be in the marketplace. And I have to make sure that change has no meaningful impact on the, on the momentum we have built in the, on the recreational side of the game. And people knew all three of those things and probably liked all three of those things. Lesser change, longer to implement, try to make it so, try to make the impact small enough that we're not really talking about major recreational uh, uh, impact. Yes, so we ought, I mean, and I'll admit, I was one of those one ball, one game right. kind of people. And now I see and the now new change. Like, now I'm like, how about bifurcation? <laughs> yeah. That wasn't so bad. And I'm not the only one having that reaction, I imagine. I always imagine. find it interesting when, when people say to me, please don't bifurcate. Right. And then when we do the cross board, please don't do an change and across the board. Right. Like so, you're really saying please don't change, and uh, sure. and that's okay. Again, from the eyes of the beholder, you, you don't need change in your game right now, and uh, you're not you're not worried about the game of golf in thirty or forty years. It's not your job to be worried about the game of golf in thirty or forty years. It is mine. The so is is bifurcation, is it completely dead as a as a possibility going forward? Uh, I don't know that it's completely dead going forward. It's definitely dead in the situation we're talking about now. This was a final outcome for us in terms of uh, okay. in terms of the golf ball. So, um, you know, will we at some point, you know, need to be serious about the difference between what's going on at the highest levels and the recreation? Probably, um, but can we can we make meaningful change uh, and still do it across the board? I believe we can, and I believe we did. I'm interested in that two-year that window. Yeah when uh, there will be a time when elite golfers, um, however that's going to look, are going to be playing uh, by the new testing standards. Yeah. And the current ball will still be available to amateur recreational players. So we will have bifurcation for a couple yeah, of years. I think, uh, I think everybody's trying to, you know, trying to tell me what 2028 and 29 is gonna look like. I'm not really convinced any of us have it right, but. Yeah. Um, here's what I know. If you ask a thousand of the best engineers in the world that, uh, that, that, and they have four years and here's the new standards, are they going to create innovation across the board? Maybe so much so that you're not going to want to play a ball that was designed in 2022, 20, uh, in 2029. I think that's highly likely. Yeah. Um, so uh, we didn't really do it to, you know, to bifurcate for say. We just simply said in the grand scope of the recreational game, um, we don't have any concern about which ball you played with in terms of posting a handicap. We don't have any, in terms of the difference of what we're proposing here, no difference in, in terms of you know, how your member guest is gonna go if somebody's four yards shorter than they were or somebody's four yards longer because they're using an old ball. And you know, to work through inventories, whether those inventories are manufacturing, retail, or garages, um, we, don't feel the, um, we don't feel the urgency to actually have to have people flip overnight. Uh, do I think come 2029, most people will be playing a ball that's on the 2028 conforming list? I 100% do. If I'm wrong, that, that's fine. We don't really have any real concerns over the difference. I also don't think it's out of the norm that a bunch of golf courses are going to pick up their white, blue, and maybe even black tees, walk up seven yards and put them back down, and that doesn't bother us either. I already do that at my course. Yeah, you're so, good. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, but I was, I'm just curious, like, if that period 
where the elite players are playing one ball and like at, my, at anybody's club, you're playing something else and everyone kind of looks around and likes it and says, hey, this is kind of, this, this kind of works. If that might be extended or if, there, if that might be a path forward. Uh, no, not likely. I mean, I think that, you know, I think if we're going to go with a one ball for all, then you've got to be committed for a one ball for all. I think if we've, if we've committed to, to try to keep that link between what gets played at the highest level and what's available to you, um, and the, the reality of it is, like I said, the, the fear of change right now, and this is reality, is so much greater than the reality of the change you'll experience. And um, I can say that until I'm blue in the face, but you know, the, rea- the, the, the playing experience will make that go away. I don't think in 2029, if you're playing a ball made in 2026 and your partner's make, playing a ball played in 2029, the two of you will, will know the difference or probably even think about the difference. And we don't want that to be disru- an disruptive moment in time. If those things transition their way out, and like I said, I, I was in the manufacturing business long enough to think about the people that have probably already started working on new technology. Um, there's going to be golf balls in 2028 that you're going to want to play, even if you're three yards shorter, because they're going to be better golf balls. Yeah. So in that sense, thinking, trying to think ahead to 2029, I mean, if the balls aren't necessarily discernibly different, different in terms of the, the quality of yeah. the experience, I mean, maybe we're not talking about uh, so much a rollback as sort of a stop gap to where uh, the 2022 ball or, or the 2023 ball um, is hasn't advanced so far um, beyond. So it's not it might not so much be rolling it back. It might yeah, just I, sort of be. Let me, let me just kind of because I mean I I try to not to let the alarmist get me, but you know I can't help myself. You know you read it, but you know where what technology we're going back to. You know we do ball checks at elite competition all the time, right? We'll go in, we'll grab six or seven balls, make sure they're conforming, uh, make sure they're on our conforming list. Um, we've in the last ten years, we've grabbed we've we've grabbed at least ten models um, that that if we shot today out here in our testing lab would be 320 or less in the new standard of 2028. These are balls played at a tour level. So anybody who thinks we're going back to some 1976, 1986, 1996 technology is just wrong. Um, we've had uh, we've had a couple of balls uh, in the last couple of years that we have done in ball testing that we still think would be 320 or less. And then a, a lot of golf balls that if we tested today are somewhere one to four yards too long. So not uh, you know not 12 yards too long, but one to four yards too long. Now not every manufacturer wants to build right to the end because of manufacturing. Um, you know you got to make sure you're you're building down, but. Um, we're not talking about a golf ball that is going back to some previous era. These are going to be modern golf balls that fly a little bit, fly a little bit shorter. Yeah. The sustainability argument is a big part of this. Um, and so can you talk to that a little bit? The, the data, you know, I've, I've read the, the distance, the 2020 yeah. report yeah, um, that cited some examples of, uh, of courses having to get longer. Of, I believe it said a third of the courses have made changes. Um, from a certain survey. Um, there's also data I have, for, you know, that people are talking about from the Golf Superintendents Association that in the last, uh, say, um, in the last 18 years, the golf courses have actually shrunk a little bit. Um, I, I, I'm shrink, I operate a very small golf course, nine hole course in the Catskills, and uh, we're tiny and gonna probably get a little tinier. Uh, our course, my course at home was just redone and, 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 it, and it wasn't lengthened. Um, so whether courses are having that expanded effect, I mean, I think aspirational courses that want to host events or state opens or college tournaments are certainly up against that. But 
maybe the, the majority of courses might not feel that sustainability pressure in terms of having to change their golf course for a golf ball. Um, so how is it still uh, a concern for them? Yeah, same thing. If you, um, if you just look at that through today's lens, here's what I know today, mm -hmm. versus let's jump 40 years ahead. And in the last 40 years, you know, the, you know, the, uh, the average drives of the longest players in the game are 40 yards longer than they were 40 years ago. That, that yard a year is about as consistent as they come. Now, it's not every year, but I'm just saying if you, if you look at long periods of time and you said a yard a year, you'd be right most of the time. So if nothing changes, the thought that we're not going to be 40 yards longer is you can argue it, but it'd be difficult to argue that statistically. So that we're 40 yards longer in terms of the top side. Now, I think a lot of people think when we've made this announcement, we're talking about the PGA Tour, or we're talking about the Corn Ferry Tour, or DP, or the Japanese Tour. We're talking about all of those tours, but we're also talking about college events. We're talking about elite male events. I, 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 I'd be embarrassed to tell you what we look for in a golf course to hold a junior, a U.S. junior amateur in terms of where the bunkers have to be from the tee boxes for them to be a legitimate concern and obstacle for, uh, for juniors today. Um, there's, not, there's not that many golf courses that, that sort of have that, that carry uh, to their fairway bunkers. So, and then when you start talking about all the, the state level, state level junior amateurs, AJGA events, you know, the, um, you know, all the state level qualifiers, and we do hundreds of qualifiers, then you take that across the globe where that's happening, not just in America, but all around the world, um, and you jump forward 30 or 40 years, you can, you can see the problem. The good news is you're not in panic. The sky isn't falling on top of you. You don't have to, you don't have to freak out. Um, and I think this is what happens with small changes, changes that happen a little bit at a time. When somebody says you were a yard longer than we were last year, you go, it's a big deal. Or we're three yards longer than we were three years ago. But if you look at that over 20 years, it becomes, it becomes legitimate. And you sort of have these small changes that become real problems. And so we know as an industry that this is, this is coming. Uh, we see golf courses do it. Talk to any you know, top designer about what they're being asked to build or when they go into a golf course, the times that they are redesigning. And just you know, turn on your TV, show up an event, tell me about tees that are there that weren't there before or bunkers that were moved forward 20 yards on the such and such fairway. And you know, it's 20 grand a bunker to move it like that. I know five, six grand a tee box to, to add those things, not to mention maintain them. So, uh, and I find it, you know, as a, as a sports nut, a guy who grew up a sports nut, I can't imagine uh, baseball saying to the green monster, you know, you need to move your green monster back about 30 yards. If you don't move it back at 30 yards, that's okay. There's other places we can play the Red Sox games. We'll just, we'll just move on to another course. Or saying that football 100 yards is no longer relevant, we're just going to go to football fields that are now 140 yards. And, you know, you've got to respect these venues that are put in place for this game to be a reality. And so just saying, well, you know, it's only 12, you know, it's only 2,000 courses a year. And if those 2,000 courses gets lapped, we'll just find another 2,000. We will, but you'll wake up in 30 or 40 years realizing that what it takes to, to build something new or hold anything of any kind of quality. And it's, uh, it's a shame that we would just kind of look the other way. I think MLB would love to have 10 home runs a game at, <laughs> in well, some games. Well, here's the interesting thing about MLB. I mean, they, they, uh, they make ball changes all the time. You know, they adjust the ball flight all the yeah. time. Um, they don't have to really worry about 45 million people using that ball, um, but they certainly make ball changes. I was on a radio show, I don't know, it was like six months ago, and I made the mistake of when the radio DJ said, hey, can you stay on for some calls? And I thought, okay, sure. Huge mistake. So a guy from Boston calls in. We're going to do some in. calls later, yeah. actually. guy from Boston calls in, and he said, you know, leave our product alone. Um, uh, nobody would screw with Tom Brady. And he gave me some Tom Brady now. I forget how he said it. And I said, hey, would it shock you to know that Tom Brady threw a certain size football in high school, 
And when he got to college, that ball was a little bigger. And when he got to the pros, it was a little bigger. And he goes, and then typical, that's BS. And I said, no, that's not BS. Um, the ball actually, I said, you know why they talk about hand size when guys come out of college for pro? And then because the ball got bigger. And he goes, well, why would they do that? And I said, because they don't want Tom Brady to throw a 96 yard out, you know, with a high school football. So they, they try to protect the, you know, the, the, the space, the 100 yards authenticity of the game. Um, not a huge adjustment, but a little adjustment to kind of keep the game in the footprint. So talk, looking at, you know, this sort of yard a year gain yeah. uh, that's generally happening. Um, if you look at average distances and you look at the majority of golfers, and again, you know, our readers and members at the Golfers Journal, um, we certainly have some with very high swing speeds and would, would right. apply as elite golfers. But if you look at the median golf distances of, say, women, uh, female golfers carrying at 147, male golfers carrying at 215 yards, um, as a golf course operator, I would love for my members to and, and guests to hit it farther. I yeah. would love for them to hit it a yard farther every year. I would love, to, frankly, I'd like the ball to be rolled forward. That would get more golfers out, they would play quicker, they would enjoy it more. Um, what do you say to folks who really, and, and honestly would say, oh, okay, the pros or the elite players have that issue. I don't care uh, because that's an entertainment product. Maybe they're even becoming less interested in that right. product. Uh, and I just want, I love that every year I'm gonna get something that's gonna help me get a little better, you know, in my Christmas stocking. Um, I would say three things. I mean, I just funny. I just my my wife is a beginning golfer, and her golf group said to me the other night, "Are you making our golf ball shorter?" You know, and I said, "I'm not making your golf ball shorter. If you're using the right golf ball for your swing speed and ball speed, um, I'm very confident your golf ball you're using now will be conforming in 2028. So if okay. you're at the front tee and you're already trying to generate you know the carry to get to the fairway or that kind of stuff, and your club head speed and ball speed is at that level, and again, you've been you've been fit with the right ball, a ball that's probably helping you keep that ball in the air and, and fly farther. Um, those over a third of the golf ball models that are in the marketplace today worldwide will still be conforming in 2028. So, and now again, those probably won't be the golf balls that you're seeing on a Sunday afternoon on CBS or NBC. Um, but a lot of golf balls, to your point about your members who are saying, hey, I'm just trying to hit it 147 yards and my club head speed is blank. Um, my guess is a huge chunk of those folks won't even have to change golf balls if they don't want. I do believe even some of those golf balls will change same logic. I think, you know, thousand engineers working on new technology, some of those golf balls are going to get better. But those golf balls won't have to change from a conformity perspective. Back to your second point, you know, for the person who's out there working as hard as they can to be 220 uh, off the, you know, off the tee. And after this change, they got a golf ball that's going to make 220, 216. Um, one, I'm a, I'm a pretty low digit handicap golfer. Uh, I've had 14 drives on a golf course uh, around. I, I couldn't tell you what my driving number is. I mean, so there's clearly a difference between that. But I would say that um, if I wanted to get back three and a half yards lost in 2028, I could do that in a lesson. You know, just go get a lesson that you could, you could really help you do that. So we're not, we're not talking about real change for the average golfer. We are talking about impact as that average golfer becomes high ball speed golfer. And um, the reason I'm so confident in saying that is we're doing that today. That's how our balls are tested today. Um, if you're swinging the club and generating 150 mile an hour ball speed, our current conformity testing that's happening just 100 yards from here from you and I, isn't probably limiting your distance, which limiting your distance is ability to generate more ball speed and club head speed. 
Um, and the same is gonna be true in 2028. We put together these conformity testing approach um, for two reasons. One is we do wanna make sure that we just don't look the other way and whatever happens, happens. And two is the way the ball is tested, um, it allows you to chase distance. If you wanna be six yards longer in, 20, in, in uh, 2028, um, than you were in 2027, you can chase that. You can work on that athleticism, coaching, testing, speed training, and we want you to be able to train that. We, I can't tell you many players would say to me, I understand your concern, Mike, just, just don't make the ball go any farther. Just draw a line in the sand. And I said, well, how do you want me to do that? You want me to put a governor in the ball and it falls out of the sky at a certain number, and so if it ball gets to 315, it just drops? Because that's not fair. We want, we want there to be a difference between athleticism and effort and um, so this is a little bit of a line in the sand. I mean, I thought Ricky Fowler said an interesting thing on TV the other day. He said, you know, at the end of the day, I've been calling this a rollback, and really what it is is much more of a kind of, kind of trying to keep it where it is. I do believe in 15 or 20 years we'll be talking about the same distances um, on the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour on other professional tours in college that we're talking about today. Right. But we won't be talking about 15 or 20 yards longer. Indeed. Uh, so, yes, the chase will go on. Uh, people yep. will get longer yeah, over time. I want time. people to chase it. They'll find ways to do it. Um, so, if that's the case, really fundamentally, the distance question has to be about more than just uh, a, a testing change on the golf ball. Uh, it has to address other things because uh, the ball is going, you know, distance is, is going to be discovered. Does golf need to ask different Questions. It seems to me that the golf that we've been playing in the last 20 or 30 years probably, and the report from 2020 suggests it, um, puts too much of an emphasis emphasis on distance or the benefit of distance is outweighed in compared, you know, compared to other skill sets. Yeah. Um, how does golf get to a place where it is doing more? Is I mean, in terms of it's probably got to be done, done, I guess, between design and setup to ask these other questions. Uh, versus just how far can you hit it, and I and I feel like, um, you know, elite golf, it's like the farther you push the tees back and the bigger you make these golf courses, the more you make distance uh, and you know the number one advantage. Um, you know, I just came from playing a place, a new course like it's down at Old Barnwell, and was hitting it past my uh, uh, you know the guys I was playing with, and I was. They were making pars and I was making double because they had a, they were able to, the way the greens are shaped and you know, it, it's a, a course that's conceived to, to test a lot of different things. Yeah. Do we need to do more? What can we do more in terms of our design and setup to make sure that it's not just all about how far you hit it? Well, I would say there's a, there's a combination of, of what we can, what we can impact and then what has to happen locally. So a lot of times when people will write me or call me and say, you know, just, just do this and set up. And I'm like, well, that's great if I'm running a tour with 26 events. Uh, but that doesn't, that's not a global answer. I can't tell Portugal um, or I can't tell San Diego or Vegas, hey, water down your fairways, get them a little softer, grow up the rough, put a few more trees at the corner um, because you're, you know, you're helping out the game. Well, that's miserable for their players that are playing there all the time. That's miserable for pace of play. It's miserable for expense. And it's really... Um, it's really irresponsible sustainability-wise. I mean, for me to say to Tucson, you know, you should water your rough a lot more and try to water, you know, um, soften up your fairways, those aren't things we can say to Australia. Um, but I would say to you, to your point, so we can look at the game overall and just try to say, and this is, by the way, never been about scoring a success. I actually couldn't tell you how the 25 longest guys on tours, PGA Tour, DP World Tour, LPGA Tour, 
um, are doing relative to the 25 best players on tour. So this is never, we've never sat down and thought about scoring or strokes gained. It's just, it's just not that. This is about how far we're pushing the envelope of the game. Um, do I think uh, individual tours, individual colleges, individual golf courses will do other things and set up to both defend their golf course um, and create different kind of challenges and shot making in the game? I do. Um, do I think that those individual choices are a global answer for the game? They're, they're, they're not. I don't just think they're not. They, they really aren't. So when somebody says to me, I can't believe that, why don't I just put trees at the dog leg quarters and grow up there? I'd say, if you want to do that in your local facility, great. And if that's what you want to do for some event you're hosting, um, that's totally up to you. Not really our answer for the game long term, not a 30 year answer um, for the game around the world, certainly not even in the States. Yeah. I've, I've, I have actually looked at some of that data, and it doesn't match up terribly well in terms of uh, world ranking and swing speed. Yeah, There's, it's never uh, been about a scoring thing. Somebody says to me, and I've had you know tour officials say to me, what's your problem? I mean, these guys aren't necessarily always succeeding. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I, I didn't say that. But if you, looked at, if you looked at ball speed generated by the top swing speeds on tours uh, over the last 20 years, it's 176 in 2007. You know, 178, six years later, 179, 181, now more than 183. I mean, by the time we get to 2028, our 183 ball speed we're going to be testing at will be dated. I know it will be dated, um, but I can base the 183 based on what's happening today, and it'll still be a lot more relevant. If you think about it, over there, we're testing balls at 176 miles an hour. And um, you take the top 25 guys on the PGA Tour because their data is the most available. Their, their average ball speed is over 183. And we're testing golf balls at 176. So I said, it's, it's like the cop sitting in the school zone. I'm making sure you're driving 25, uh, but I'm paying no attention to what you're doing on the highway. Yeah. And uh, our, you know, our testing is simply obsolete relative to today's game. And since the day we started this in 1976, this meaning the way we test golf balls, We've said that it's going to take regular updates to keep up with the game, and it has, and, it, and, it, and today's a great example of that. But it does reveal something, though, when we're talking about, again, you know, we're saying the game, and we're talking about people who can swing or, or at ball speeds of 183. Um, where I am in my golf life, that's not the game. You know, yeah. um, and, and, and we're that, not building a test that's, that, that that ball is going to be capped out for you. Yeah, mean, and I don't even know. mean how my personal, like my own playing of golf, and I mean, in terms of the things I care about in golf and the golf that I'm interested in. Um, yes, I, I, I enjoy watching tour golf and competitive golf on a Sunday afternoon, but um, you know, thinking much more about the millions of people who play on Saturday and Sunday afternoons, or or, uh, or our members at the Journal, um, that that rule changes that apply to. Uh, people who want to play in elite events, um, it's that affecting anything in our golf, not even just the ball, like whether it w in any rule change or any way that the game's played because of this small sliver is, um, it just always, it, it feels a little bit, uh, it feels like that top-down view of the game that I think some people, well, that, I, that I'm somewhat uncomfortable yeah. with. I would just say to you that at the top of every, uh, at the every, and I'm thinking about this little sheet I have at my desk, but it was talked about the principles we had walking into this. And number one principle is you can't impact the momentum of the recreational game. Um, I understand that when people hear a ball that's going to be, you know, three to five yards shorter or zero, depending on where you are, in the, that feels like just the opposite. If we believe that could actually impact your joy of the game, ability to play the game, or quite frankly, your ability to totally 
obsolete that if you wanted to. If you wanted to work at generating five more yards, you probably could because this ball's not going to stop you from being five yards longer if you want to pursue that. Um, because you know the cap of this thing or the, the real limitations are at higher ball speed. Um, but from the very beginning, we didn't really want to have any, you know, any meaningful impact on the recreational game. And I, I couldn't sit here and look you in the face if I, if I believed that wasn't true. I believe that is true in 2028. I believe it's really difficult to explain to, that, to a lot of people in 2023 or 2024 that difference. But, um, but we, I can tell you, we, meaning USJ and the RNA, fundamentally believe this is going to have um, no meaningful impact on the recreational game. But a meaningful... Um, step long-term to how far the footprint of the game gets uh, gets pushed. That's um, That's been the top of the list. One of the reasons why I wanted to take the job. Like, you know, I, yeah. I, I love this game and didn't want to do anything to, to hold it back. Now, you don't have to believe me. You don't have to agree with me. Um, but I can tell you it has been a driving factor since the, since the minute we started this process. Now, I know you'd love to talk more about the golf ball, but I'd like to talk to you about <laughs> sustainability. Um, and, and sustainability is a part of what's going on with the golf yeah. ball. Um, what are other ways to address sustainability that the USGA can address? I mean, like you said, you can't make all the changes on the local level yeah. or at each golf course for them. But I always wonder uh, in terms of like, say, you know, the expense and, you know, now having some experience trying to, to, to operate a golf course, the expense that goes into trying to make it look a certain way uh, and to make greens move at a certain speed. Fast greens are expensive. Yeah. Um, the USGA championships are something that under your purview and uh, the green speeds at the US Open, uh, the conditions at a US Open, they sort of, don't they set an aspirational standard that perhaps isn't sustainable, that other golf courses are going to chase uh, and isn't in the model of sustainability? Yeah, a lot of questions in there. So I'm going to take it from the beginning, I think, when you talked about sustainability and what are the things, and then I'll come back to your point about U.S. Open setup. Um, so, uh, yeah, we have a program we call 153045. So in the next 15 years, we're going to commit $30 million to help make sure that we can help any golf course reduce their water and nutrient footprint by 45%. Yeah. Now, that's not a stop watering number eight or, you know, turn six holes into a par three. We've really got to be invested. And I, I said this to the board when I took the job at the USGA. We're an incredible lab, but a lot of times we think our work is done when we publish some white paper. You know, in some two by two square foot plot of land in a resource facility at the following college, we found the following. We publish it and we move on. That's not helping the local guy. So we are really, over the next uh, 15 years, really getting in the marketplace. So. Uh, I don't want to get lost in this because you can talk. I can talk in this forever. But the basic idea of we spray water in the air, hoping that three percent of that water will make it to the root system of the grass, um, not a big deal in New Jersey because it's going to rain three more inches in the next week, but a real big deal in San Francisco. So you know things like drip irrigation, where we put the irrigation under the root system and drip up into the roots, where ninety percent of the water can make it to the root system as opposed to to four. Um, GPS sprayers, you know, where we can actually track from a satellite perspective where on the golf course you're actually getting play. Nobody's over there. We don't need to water over there. And can we put uh, can we put spraying system on a GPS satellite-based system? I, again, I can go off on these mm -hmm. for a long time. Yeah. Huge differences in terms of uh, turf grass grains. And we're always testing. And most of the greens and fairways in today came out of a USGA lab at at some point 20 years ago, but we'll invest another $2 million a year in grant programs for people that are working on new, in a lot of cases, agricultural ideas that may be more focused on farming, that we wanna make sure that we could understand what it would mean from a golf perspective. Um, so um, 
we've got to be on the cutting edge of what could be a much better and sustainable game and can sort of live up to the whatever the standard's going to be in 2050 for how, the, how this game is or isn't fitting into the footprint of sustainability. And we will. And probably the only one that's really overly invested in, in that idea. When it comes back to your point about specific uh, championships, uh, yeah, even the way we're uh, testing greens today, we've created a, a, a ball called the GS3. It's a looks like a golf ball, but full of sensors, and you can roll it across the green, and it'll tell you the firmness and trueness of the of a green. And you could be able to, if you're a public golf course facility, you could be able to say, hey, they may not sound like the green you saw on TV, but I can compare the trueness and firmness and roll of this green to some of the best golf courses in the world and the ones you see in the USGA uh, play on, on site. We do have, you know, what we're trying to do at our championships is separate, in a lot of cases, 156 or 300 athletes and try to figure out who is, in fact, the best, uh, the best player in that field. And to do that, we've got to make these golf courses hard and challenging and different. Because if, um, if it's all the same, you get a lot of all the same. Um, but that doesn't, mean, uh, that doesn't mean every golf course has to be the same way. I mean, we were talking about Major League Baseball. I mean, I, I go to Major League Baseball games. I've been to Yankees Stadium. I realize that my kids in Little League aren't playing on that turf. Um, and that is turf for the best in the world. And the same is true in golf. There's turf for the best of the world and, and turf for the rest of us. But... Um, um, but I think for us, we got to put our money where our mouth is and our effort. So investing in, in better ideas and then working with golf courses to get those ideas actually in the ground. And we've got golf courses now throughout the U.S. that are implementing these changes together with us to create uh, labs and be able to say to somebody, look what we did at such and such golf course in Northern California, or what we did in such and such golf course in Vegas, and how that could apply to your to your place as well. I mean, those... Um, those are the less glamorous things that don't make it on a lot of podcasts, but we get calls for virtually every day from mm -hmm. golf courses, which is help us. Let me tell you what we're paying for water, what we're paying for nutrients. Let me tell you what the local government is saying to us about our land use. And um, again, the average golfer doesn't want to think about that, but we don't want golf courses to be challenged now, but more importantly, to be challenged in 30 years for not being responsible in their, in their land use. A lot of initiatives there. Would it be easier um, or is the USGA interested in trying to get golfers to accept more natural, rugged uh, conditions? Uh, where, and it's funny, Americans will go to Ireland or Scotland and they'll play a golf yeah. course that's maintained by two people and it'll be rugged as heck and you won't know where the fairway or the rough starts and ends. <laughs> and they'll say, and the greens will roll at seven, and they'll say, that was the time of my life. And then they'll come back here to the country club and, and say, uh, why aren't the greens rolling at 13? Um, I just, I always wonder about that because uh, I feel like, you know, if, if there was, you know, golf changed at some point and became this sort of more garden Eden experience in America. And that's just very expensive and takes, as you said, a lot of water, a lot of inputs. Um, it would be wonderful to, to be able to tell people that, you know, when your when your course browns out in August, that's great. Yeah, you know we don't need more water. And and when uh, you don't have thirty machines to maintain a golf course, that's okay too. Golf doesn't have to look a certain way. Um, is there a way to sort of feature some of those more 
uh, natural rugged elements of golf to make people understand that golf is bigger than what they see at the Masters in the U.S. Open. It's it's happening. It may not be happening at the pace uh, that you like, and it's and it's definitely local. I mean, if you're in Philadelphia, they're probably not so much worried about water. But if you're um, if you're spending time out on the West Coast, you're already seeing some of this. There's a lot of golf courses now that talk to us all the time about letting them play firm and fast in August if yeah. you're not getting water. Quite frankly, the the members are learning kind of by default that it's actually exciting to play the course, to play the course that way. It changes the landscape mm -hmm. of the course. And so I think locally we're seeing we're seeing some of those differences. Um, but the reality of it is um, there'll be some expectations, you know, that we know that golf courses want to achieve. And there are ways um, that we're working on now to achieve those expectations without the without the kind of added cost that we think of today. If you have to water the entire golf course, hoping that 4% of the water hits the root system, um, we're going to be limited for a long time. If we start thinking about how to do a much better job with the water that we use and therefore could use a lot less of it or the nutrients less of it because it actually gets where it has to go, that's, that's game-changing and doesn't ask us, can we change the perception of 100 million people as, a, as opposed to change the perception of 16,000 in terms of how we're managing the course. Yeah. Well, a proposal for you. Okay. U.S. Open Greens, roll a 10. <laughs> <laughs> and then... And then which I actually think that uh, slower greens, uh, I think fast greens are actually a great equalizer when it comes to putting ability. I mean, anyone can tap the ball. Um, it takes a certain amount of skill to create momentum and power and yeah. force and hit the middle of the putter uh, and, and match up break with actually a, a putt that's slowing down a lot um, and is going to break more. So anyway, um, I, 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 and, if the, and if greens were slower in the US Open or in any, any big event or, yeah. or in anything that anyone's seeing on TV, that there would be less of that arms race to get our greens to 12 uh, at our course. Um, and, and again, and having you know tried to speed up greens um, at a golf course myself uh, and just and, and realizing uh, how many man hours on the machines that takes. Yeah. Um, that green speed is, it seems like one thing that we could, we could kind of fix pretty easily, but take it. Don't Fair take enough. it. Yeah. I know yeah. you. I know. If you're noticing comment period, now we have time to comment. No, comment I, think, I think you might be surprised if you went around all the different uh, USGA championships that not everything is running at US Open yeah. green speed. But some of the courses we play at the US Open, green to your point is an equalizer and a and a different maker. Sometimes yeah. when we're playing in a you know an abandon, you're not you're not playing like that for all kinds of the same reasons you wouldn't in Scotland because you're out there totally exposed to the wind and you got to make sure that the golf course can adapt to the to the climate. How has it been working with the RNA? These are two very different organizations. Yeah. United States Golf Association is a national um, organization uh, with the CEO, and um, the Royal and Ancient is uh, is, a, is a golf club in in Scotland that, uh, through its history um, and role in the Open Championship, has has become uh, the governing body of golf uh, over there. So two different organizations. How's that dynamic worked and how's it worked together? Yeah, I mean, I can only speak to my two and a half years. I mean, I knew Martin really well, right? I mean, I knew Martin very well from my LPGA days. In fairness, you know, Martin helped me get in and uh, save is the wrong word, but kind of rescue a struggling ladies European tour. Um, uh, when I asked him to consider taking over the, you know, the, uh, the Open Championship for women, he, you know, he did and, and, and took that to another level. So um, we were pretty good friends when I walked on here. And what came clear to me almost within the first month is, we're, we might be structured a little different, but the identical mission between the two entities okay. in terms of both groups that are um, uh, 
that are hoping to have the courage to think about the game long term and have the ability to do that from an unbiased perspective. Martin thinks about that pretty much as his as his North Star, and so do we. So um, uh, I knew going in it would be easy to work with Martin and therefore his team, and it has been. I would uh, I would say that I'm I'm lucky to have a partner in this. I mean, this is hard stuff. I mean, I, I won't mm-hmm. lie to you. Um, I'm a you know I'm like anybody else. I'd like to be liked, but you have to make decisions whether they're talking about rules. Or, or equipment standards, or you know some of the stuff we're working on, you have to make decisions that you know when you hit the send button, 50% of the people will will not like you, just not sure which 50 till you wake up in the morning. Um, but to have to have a partner to work through that, and really have somebody that I believe um, at least as much as me uh, cares about the future of this game, and you know from a deep perspective, um, there's nobody that walks in this building every day that um, that needs a pat on the back. They they're driven by the fact that whatever they're working on in this building, uh, they really do believe it's uh, it's for the good of the game long term. Now, uh, there are a lot of people who probably find themselves in whatever line of work they're in or yeah. wherever they are in their life where they are facing something where there is no easy answer, where there is no obvious solution, <laughs> where they can't make everybody happy. Um, having gone through this experience now, um, what would you say to those people? Courage. You know, uh, courage, believe believe that you're doing the right thing. Um, uh, challenge yourself and your team to get to a position that you can live with. It's, um, I really do believe this is, pro- you know, it's probably fair to say this is something we should have done 10 or 15 years ago. I can you know, take that critique. Um, but it's also hard. You know, this is hard stuff. And there's a lot of people that will try to talk you into the, into the option C, doing nothing. Um, and, you know, this is like a, like a, like um a global warming, you know, you're not in trouble tomorrow. It, the sky isn't falling today, but you see it coming. So the question is, do you care enough about the next generation to do something about it? And um, and you need to know going in that the overwhelming inertia is going to push you back on. Uh, oh, I really, I can't tell you that many people have said, yes, I knew we need to do something, but I didn't know you were talking about me. Um, so, you know, everybody says, you know, a little change is necessary. Just do it to somebody else. Um, and at the end of the day, you, you know, you gotta, you gotta have the. If you, I've said this, I've said this to Mark many times. If we don't have the courage to do what's right for the game, then both of us have to recognize that and get out of the way and let somebody else do the job, um, because it's, um, it can't be a, it, it can't be a contest for popularity. It's got to be about whether or not you believe the game is going to be better. This game, uh, you know, this game gave me everything. You know, ethics, values, competition, a job, um, my family. You know, we, this, this, you know, my dad and I, mom and I, dad. Have had more conversations on a golf course than we've ever had at a Sunday dinner or church. Or um, so, you know, what this game is like in 50 years matters more to me than it does for most. A question for you as a CEO: Habits and and frankly, you know, going through like this crazy busy two weeks, being able to yeah. sit down with us and articulate these points uh, very well. What are your habits to staying successful? What do you need to do to stay on top of your game? You're talking about in business, in life. Uh, have a North Star, you know, uh, check in on the North Star. My, dad, my father used to say, you know, you don't know how far you've grown if you don't know where your roots are. I mean, when I, when I joined this company, I spent the first day in the museum. And I thought a lot of people thought that was weird. Like, what's he doing over there? Like, this is his first day in the job. Um, that's where the roots are. You know, I, I read the minutes from the first USGA meeting. Why were we established? What, 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 was the, what were they hoping to achieve when the United States Golf Association was pulled together? Um, getting back to some of that basics. When I started at the LPG, I flew around and met our living founders. Uh, people thought that was crazy. Like, you're brand new, the business is in trouble, and you're flying around talking to women that played 30 years ago. 
yeah, I needed to get back to how the LPGA was formed, why it was formed, what the missions were, what the visions were. And you can kind of go from there once you understand your root system. You know, to me, when you realize that the USGA was formed because as golf was taking off in America, it, there was, um, it was becoming a little bit of the Wild West. That person said they were the United States Open Championship and sort of that person in that state. Mm -hmm. There was rules being played in, Nor in Rhode Island that were different than were being played in New York versus Chicago. And we really brought together an organization that said, hey, can we establish an organization that's not tied to any of these clubs, not tied to any of these manufacturers, not tied to any other parts of the business or the players, that from a non-biased position can, can govern, you know, can give us rules we can all play by, can give us championships that we all can commit that those are the national championships of this business, can decide what is and isn't allowed in the game. So that's the heart of what the USGA is all about. And so um, I would just say, you know, have that North Star as a CEO. When, when you come back, and that, by the way, I, I, um, I took the first page of the minutes had a replica made, I framed it and put it right next to my desk. So I mean, I see it every day when I walk in, I see it every day when I put down my briefcase and open my computer and just get reminded that, you know, this is what the, this is what the golf game is counting on you for. They may not always like that they're counting on you for it, but without it, we get back to what the issues were in the late 1800s. And um, do I mean, it just reminds me, do your job. Finally, Mike, as CEO of the CEO of the USGA, you are now part of golf history uh, and part of that museum upstairs. You'll have a, chap a page, a chapter in the, uh, in the history of golf. How would you like it to read? I hope, it's, I hope, I, hope I don't have a, a page or a chapter, I hope we do. Uh, you know, there's 320 people that come in here every day. And um, we've talked about it a lot. I said when I joined here, um, I probably shouldn't say this on a podcast, probably get me in trouble. But when I joined here, I felt, I felt that the USGA was a world-class check writer. Um, if you had an idea to grow the game, we wrote you a check. First tee, drive, chip, and putt, PGA, you know, PGA Girls Golf, uh, LPGA Girls Golf. Uh, we always were there supporting somebody else's big initiative, but somebody else was out on the front of the parade doing the work and leading. We always wrote a white paper, but we didn't actually put the white paper in the ground at your golf course. So I believe what we call BBLs, big, bold leadership initiatives. We gotta be bigger, we gotta be bolder, and we gotta be willing to lead with our neck on the line. Distance, we're leading with our neck on the line. Um, we started the United States development, uh, de development team because for 12 years as LPGA commissioner, I saw that every woman on that tour came out of a country program except the Americans. And I realized what these other, these other girls were ready to win at 17, and the Americans, quite frankly, weren't in terms of some of the, uh, some of the resources and learnings that they had. Um, we could have looked around and said, geez, if somebody else would just start that, We'll write them a check every year and help them get started. We're leading the United States National Development Team. It's going to be expensive. It's going to be long-term, um, but we're going to have a $30 million grant program to make sure these kids, no matter where they come from, if they've got real talent and real ability and real desire, we're going to see them all the way that they're, wherever their golf career is going to go. Um, you know, we talked about 15, 30, 45. I talked that we've, we've endowed the Walker and Curtis Cup. I, I, think, um, I think the world needs the United States Golf Association to not just be a supporter, but to be a leader. And I hope what it'll say there about this era, not about Mike Wan, but this era, is that was a time when the USGA really became, uh, became bold leaders. Uh, not all bold leadership efforts work, by the way. Some of these may, may not be the, the greatest, but we're not going to fail for lack of effort. To BBLs. BBLs. Thank you, Mike. Can't <laughs> thank, thank you enough for your time. Appreciate thank you guys coming to see And us. everything you do for golf. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. And if you enjoyed this episode, we strongly encourage you to become a member of the Golfer's Journal, or if you already are, to share it with your friends. As a reader-supported publication, we couldn't do it without you. 
We also couldn't do it without the help of our partners, and they are Titleist, Scotty Cameron, Footjoy, Link Soul, Omega, Charles Schwab, and BMW. We'll see you next time on the Golfer's Journal podcast. <laughs>